Welcome to Snap Sessions, an episodic podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name's Doug Nunn. I'm joined by Techmeister Marshall Downtown Brown and voiceover colossus Ken Krause, and by our artist of the show. Our guest this episode, painter, graphic artist, sculptor, all-around creator, James Maxwell. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. In the Shadow of the Mountain. In 1974, I went to study at a German language school in Bavaria. I met dozens of foreigners, including Mehdi Talabian Yazdi from Tehran, Iran. Mehdi was a goofy guy and loved practical jokes. I remember letting the air out of his bicycle tires, and he spent days plotting to get back at me. One day, when I was bending over, he pushed me into the swimming pool. You had to admire Mady's pluck. Toward the end of the course, Mady asked me if I'd like to drive a car to Tehran for him. He would drive a BMW, and I'd be following in a Peugeot. To pay me back, he'd fly me back to Frankfurt. I agreed. We picked up cars a week later and began a 3,000-mile journey. Mady spoke no English, and I spoke no Farsi. Our common tongue was German. <laughs> In the middle of August 1974, we drove south through Germany and Austria, along the length of crowded Yugoslavia, through Bulgaria, and drove all the way across Turkey, finally making our way from the Iranian border down to Tehran. We had all kinds of adventures. We had to drive fast across German and Austrian autobahns at 160 kilometers per hour. That's 100 miles per hour and almost as fast along Yugoslavian roads, filled with European tourists, summering on Dalmatian beaches. And we seemed to lose each other every few hours or so. This meant waiting on the side of the road, sometimes for hours, until Mady would drive back to find me. We picked up lots of European hippie hitchhikers. It was a cultural exchange of the highest order. Remember, this was the middle of the Cold War, and when we reached Bulgaria, we were driving into a truly Stalinist country with glorious billboards touting the leader, Todor Krzysztof Zivkov. We stopped for dinner in the capital, Sofia, where I got a severe case of fever-filled dysentery and spent an eventful night in a hospital in Plovdiv, nursed by burly Soviet-style nurses, communicating with the doctor in broken French, and guarded by a big horse of a KGB guard who looked like Luca Brazzi from The Godfather. Luca Brazzi sleeps with the fishes. And carried a very big pistol. Somehow this group got me out of the hospital and back on the road as the sun was rising. We rewarded their efforts with packs of Marlboros, which we carried hidden in our trunks. We crossed into Turkey and straight into a budding war zone along the Greco-Turkish border with tanks rumbling by and jets roaring over our heads. 
toward Greece. We were right in the middle of the Cyprus crisis of August 1974, with Greece and Turkey on the verge of war. There were soldiers on every crossing, many demanding rides south. At one point, Mady was pulled over by two Turkish soldiers. I parked behind him and watched as words were exchanged. Mady seemed to resist until one of the soldiers actually slugged him. Then they both got in his car and Mady drove off. I followed until he pulled over again and the soldiers got out. Mady looked a bit puffy-faced, but he told me they'd insisted he give them a lift. He initially refused, got punched, and figured it was more dangerous to resist than to drive. The closer we got to Istanbul, the more colorful the traffic became. It seemed like a return to 1958, as the road was filled with cherried-out hot rods, Oldsmobiles, Cadillacs, Chevys, all painted up in a variety of colors or checkerboard patterns and driven like rockets by mustachioed Turks who sped past me on both sides. It was harder and harder to keep up with Mady, who pulled off ahead to wait up. Driving was a matter of masculinity to Mady. What is wrong with you? Can't you keep up with Turkish drivers? These guys are driving crazy, Mady. Ha! You haven't seen anything yet, American boy. We drove through Istanbul with minarets, St. Sophia, and beautiful vistas all around. We heard the Muzines calling people to prayer. It was evening when we crossed the Bosporus. I couldn't believe where I was. The next day, Mady and I continued eastwards and drove in blazing August heat toward Ankara, the capital. We started to head into the mountains. The road was less like a highway and became a series of gravel roads, occupied here and there with massive Russian trucks heading toward the Soviet Union. As we stopped in various places, I was followed by goofy kids who laughed at my accent in Bermuda shorts. Finally, one hot night, we had driven until it was about 2 a.m., and we were both exhausted. We seemed to be in the middle of nowhere, but there were lights ahead, and we stopped in front of a giant pile of watermelons. There were three Turks sitting in front of this melon mountain and stuffing themselves. Pulling a machete out, a jovial Turk sliced a melon in half, and sugary water poured down his arms as he shared with us. Slivovitz was offered as well, and soon we were drinking and laughing and gorging ourselves. We slept for a few hours, and then Mady insisted we get an early start. The sun was a distant gleam in the eastern sky as we got up and headed up the windy road. I was low on gas, but the hope was that we would find a station soon. Suddenly, as Mady pulled around a corner on the mountain road ahead, my car just ran out of gas. I managed to get off to the side of the gravel road, but I had no idea where Mady was or how far he had to drive until he reached the next town. I waited and waited. No Mady. In the early morning sun, a shepherd moved toward me, his sheep following slowly. He signaled to me that he wanted a cigarette. As that is one thing Mady and I had plenty of, I opened the trunk and got one out. The shepherd leaned against my car and took a long drag. Suddenly, other shepherds began gathering around my car. In no time at all, five or six shepherds were around me, their flocks flowing down the hill. They were enjoying a group smoke as big Soviet trucks rolled by. Suddenly, a frustrated matey drove back up, and I told him I had run out of gas. 
Now he had to drive many miles back to the gas station, fill up a gas can, and then return. At least a one-hour round trip. As he departed, one of the shepherds pulled out a transistor radio and began playing Turkish music. There was much smoking and dancing by the time Mady returned. Soon we were waving goodbye to the shepherds. By then, I had probably given away a pack of Marlboros. Once we tanked up, we headed east, and it was blazing hot as Mady pulled over later in the afternoon near Erzurum in eastern Turkey. In the distance was the amazing sight of snow-capped Mount Ararat. This is the place mentioned in the Bible where Noah parked the ark. A rest stop for arks. It's the mountain you see on the side of a box of Akmak crackers. In the shadow of this great mountain, which has major religious significance for the three monotheistic faiths, a grumpy matey pulled out a map. It had been a long day, and he was in a very bad mood, looking for someone to bitch at. We looked down at the map, and it was obvious we were facing a big fork in the road. One way headed due east, while one went southeast. The latter seemed the quicker way to the Iranian border, and I said as much. I don't know if it was the heat or the increasing cultural friction that caused him to snap. But right then, Mady said, No, no, you are wrong. We will go in this direction. Normally, I wouldn't have cared, but I was hot and crabby too, and I felt compelled to disagree. Mady was furious. If you don't believe me, this means you do not trust me. Trust? Matey, I wouldn't trust my own dad if he told me to go the wrong way. Matey glared at me, and then he exploded. If you would not trust your own father, this means you do not believe in God. This, my friends, is the Middle Eastern equivalent of a trick question. But I was getting surly now, too, and I said, Well, frankly, matey, I've had my doubts. Uh-oh! Whoops. Wrong thing to say. I was just being honest. I had been raised a Lutheran, baptized, confirmed, and four years an altar boy for a friendly Swedish pastor. Lutherans are mostly hard-working types and don't really ask much of you. Our version of the second coming is best summarized by a bumper sticker. Jesus is coming back. Better look busy. But after four years at UC Berkeley, I'd become a doubter, and I had just admitted it to someone who was absolutely convinced of God's certitude. Mady exploded and launched into a tirade on Western decadence. He nailed everything from Amsterdam's druggy lifestyle to Mickey Mouse and cheeseburgers. Then he said, from now on, he would speak to me only if he had to. And he was as good as his word. He refused to talk to me for much of the rest of the trip until he took me to the airport in Tehran a week later. He just ignored me and acted like I didn't exist. In the Middle East, apparently there's little room for doubt. I was no longer a person of the book. I was a real infidel now. Distances in Iran are vast, and August is hot. We still had about 800 miles in two days to drive through eastern Turkey and northwestern Iran to reach Tehran. As we slept in our cars that night on the side of the road, I was quite alone, and the only music I could get on the radio was in Turkish, Arabic, or Farsi. A few days later, we arrived at Mady's house in Tehran. I met Mady's family and felt distinctly out of place, as I didn't know what he was telling them. Yet they seemed nice enough. His bearded brother began talking with me in broken German about the CIA coup that restored the Shah in 1954. I am ashamed to say that I'd never heard of it before then. Mady's brother seemed to consider that a real gap in my education. 
For the next week, as I waited for my return flight, I would speak only occasional German with Mady and met no one who spoke English. Mady was mostly surly to me, but occasionally seemed to forget and slid momentarily back to his good-natured previous self. We ate hot bread and goat cheese for breakfast, which I loved, and I was fascinated by the sights and smells of Tehran, which has sewers running under every house. So August is a fragrant time. Finally, it was time to leave. Mady got up early and drove me under the Shah's triumphal arch on the way to the airport. I tried to thank him for his hospitality. I told him I'd like to stay in touch, but he was having none of it, and he began to unload on me. He said he would be glad to be rid of me in my Western ways. Yes, I am happy that we got the Peugeot to Iran, but I wish I was not obliged to fly you back. It was a humbling trip to the airport. When he dropped me off at the airport, I was just happy to have a chance to fly back to Europe. I met a Dutch businessman. For the first time in weeks, I had a conversation in English, and we talked about cultural clashes. Just remember, said the Dutchman, never talk with Americans about communism, and never talk with Muslims about religion. We shared a laugh. When I got back to Germany, I spent a few days with a wonderful family that fed me lots of schnitzel and nursed me back to health. One evening, we went to a carnival filled with happy Germans and Turkish guest workers. I headed straight for the bumper cars, which has always been my favorite ride. I climbed in my car, but before I could even get started, I was smashed into the wall. I figured it was my German friend, but I saw a bunch of Turkish girls zooming off with their hijabs billowing in the breeze. They were fully decked out in head-to-toe clothing, giggling like a bunch of teeny boppers. We spent the rest of the night ambushing and ramming each other. It was a truly ecumenical evening, a blast. Whether you were a person of the book or just a doubting Thomas. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us on Patreon. We depend on the support of listeners like you. Hi, I am here for our Snap Sessions interview with James Maxwell. James is an old friend, also known as Max, by the way, so I will alternatively call him Jim, James, and Max, just so you know. He's a longtime Mendocino artist, but he's also just sort of a world artist. And I would say that in the best sense. He's kind of like an earthling artist. And he's been a, a member of our planet for a long time and an artist in a lot of wonderful ways. Max, it's great to have you here. Doug, I'm very happy to be here with you. I know there's a lot of places to start, but I thought we would just start going back to the young Max. I read that you grew up around Riverside, California, which was actually a revelation to me. I didn't know that. What was it like growing up? I know it's called the Inland Empires. I imagine Riverside to be hot. What was it like growing up around Riverside, and what kind of stuff did you enjoy doing as a kid? It was hot. It was hot. 
113 in the mm-hmm. summers, but I didn't mind. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I didn't have any point of reference. My dad worked for the food machinery company. That was great because I didn't know what he was doing, except when he got home and got into the garage. And then I could go and be with him, and that was fun. I was always enthralled with what he did as a hobby in relationship to his career, which was kind of obscure. I didn't understand it until he took me there, and that was to watch the um, shuttle of all this food stuff that Riverside was producing for the food machinery company and all these conveyor belts of oranges and lemons and and all the um, produce that was packaged, wrapped all by these machines that my dad did. But I also was really impressed that, you know, here it was just after the Second World War. And during the war, my dad was still an engineer for the Food Machinery Corporation, but they converted it to machinery for the war effort. Were you like a drawer as a kid or? Yes. Terrible answer. Mm -hmm. Um, But a short one. But it's working. It's working. I found that because my brother was five years older than me and didn't Uh want to play with me, my Uh dad was at work and my mom was kind of like, get the hell out of here. And I would go into my bedroom and I would draw and tell myself stories by drawing, by pencils. And essentially, I think I learned how to be seduced by my mind. My mind would go on these adventures and I had to record them. So as a kid, I did one painting that got me in terrible state. My ego showed up really quick. I had done a drawing based on Little Black Sambo. Terrible message Mm -hmm. now because they don't want to do anything with that. Mm -hmm. But for me, it was all about the tiger chasing his tail. And I can remember at dinner, we had ice cream and Bosco. And Bosco was a chocolate, like Hershey's syrup. And when you cover a vanilla ice cream with Bosco, and you start to swirl it as is a four to seven-year-old's want, you discover that that's exactly what happened to the tiger all the stripes started to reconverge and can make these <laughs> swirls. And I took that idea to school, and it was a real hit. <laughs> and the principal wanted to put it in her office, and then she told me I would get it back, but she told me it was lost. I had a meltdown. I mean, it was the first time I defended my art like a vicious little (laughs) swamp buggy. I walked home from school, said, I'm never going to return. My mom went back. And they got it that they had blown it with me. And they called a woman who was a art mave for the California School District. And she says, well, let's give him a lesson. I've got a husband that just returned from Japan. Uh, He studied sumi painting by the Japanese. Let's see if he and your son can make it together. So they put me together with this teacher of the old school Japan, and I learned how to hold a brush and why. Because they had to communicate with the brush. But he also told me that if you set yourself a discipline like 
what I had was a, a brilliant exercise to put a brush above the piece of paper so it doesn't drip, then enter it so that there's a really sharp point, then pull it across the surface until it's the widest point that a brush can go, and then exit it so it looks like it's exactly the way you started and the way you finished. And what that made me do was to recognize that I was in charge of what I did for the rest of my life. You ended up heading off into the Air Force, and I, as I recall, you wrote me you ended up in Germany or something. You did basic training and all that, and maybe describe that time and the kind of stuff that you were doing in the Air Force. One of the funny things about how welcoming I felt I was, I had been uh, tested by the Air Force as what everybody is when they go into the Air Force. It was during the time of peace. Right. And they wanted to find young men that essentially had something that they needed in the Air Force and they would be willing to put out an education. So they put me into an office shuffling pictures until I got my marching orders, which were uh, to a code-breaking school in San Angelo, Texas, where they taught pattern recognition. What happened was I evidently featured large on pattern recognition. Report writing, which is evidently I had that skill, because essentially I learned how to be able for the next four years, or three and a half years, in Germany to be a code breaker slash report writer. The, op the operating word here was a spy. Oh. We knew every single aircraft in Russia in 1960 on because someone that had gone through the school I had done broke the code of being able to intercept the radio transmissions from Russia and to plot every single aircraft from the air. They didn't want anybody to know, so that was what was secret. But essentially, I, I was in the office that was also responsible for tracking Francis Gary Powers' shoot-down. I'll be darned. That's the famous um, U-2 pilot who was shot down over Russia in 1960, wasn't it? Something like that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I, I essentially couldn't write anything about that. I never said anything to anybody until the Cold War was over. I wasn't interested in bringing up that past because it was a lot more interesting stuff that was going on. But it's kind of like, it made me take stock of what I was capable of. Being in the Air Force, being able to draw on my own resources, taking risks knowing that I mean, essentially I was kind of like a privileged individual that they were not going to mess around with, they being the powers that be. I made my own studio, a painting studio, in the basement of the barracks, and they discovered it, and they let me keep it. So, yes, I went to the Art Center, the GI Bill. I got it all the way through to my master's degree. And because of that, I met some really remarkable teachers at the Art Center. One was Lorser Feitelson, who was the major artist in Los Angeles at the time that worked for the Art Center. He was a real draw. He was really good friends with a lot of famous people because of his skills. But essentially, he taught me how to bring my drawing skills up beyond they ever 
had been before because he wanted me to get the job done, which is essentially being an artist. So out of that fine relationship, that inspired me to take my master's show and present it to a gallery on La Cienega Boulevard. And I had a show on La Cienega, which translated into about three more shows after that. And during that three years, I had jockeyed my way into interviews with CBS, NBC, and later PBS. I got a job with NBC right off. And before you leave, I'll bring out the picture I found of Johnny Carson that I did for the Johnny Carson show. It's the only thing I stole from NBC. Uh (laughs) But it provided me with a kind of livelihood that a young man right out of college could afford a brand new Volvo two-door sedan. And I paid it off in like six months. Great. And uh, it was kind of like, what a roll I was on. I just was so happy. I worked with the news departments. I knew I worked with... Hallmark Hall of Fame, Dean Martin. God, it was what a role. It was just a great role. And so um, when, uh, hmm, I forgot about this, but I took a vacation and I came up to Ferndale by way of the coast. And so you drove all the way up the north coast at that time. Yes. And I didn't stop in Mendocino, but I fell in love with Highway 128. And I said, I'm going to move here. And I said, uh, I got to do something more in relationship to what I feel is going on in the world. So I dropped that job and I became a graphic designer for PBS television in Los Angeles. And I found that that fit my burgeoning social responsibility. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, on my way to work one day, I had stopped a neighbor from strangling a cat and he pushed me to the ground and we made a police assault and all all that sort of stuff. But 10 days later, after I brought him back from the mental situation where he was in a hospital for a while, he shot me. Oh, my goodness. And that was a rather major turning point for oh me. Oh, my goodness. May I ask where you were shot? Okay, so you're sitting in a chair with a mm-hmm. rifle. Yeah. And I'm walking on the street, and your eye line connects to my heart. Oh. But my arm got in the way, oh. and it shattered my arm. And I kept on going on, but uh, my friend in the uh, in the gallery situation and in the apartment situation there, her name was Berta, good friend of Antonia Lamb. She's the one that gave me first aid right away and called the police. So that meant <laughs> I'm going to have to stop this. 128 fetish and go visit the people <laughs> in Mendocino. So I was with Antonia Lamb yeah. for four days before I went up to see my parents and turned around and came back. I just want to interject here. Max was a courtroom illustrator. This was before cameras were allowed in courtrooms. No, courtrooms were... <laughs> opens up a big, big question still. I fell in love with courtroom sketch artists when I was in art history. Art history has a guy by the name of Honoré Daumier, and he covered the trials in France during the time of off with their heads. Mm -hmm. And so these courtroom sketch artists, the art, became not only a historical precedent for art being used as a production tool, a news tool, 
that it became wonderful to look at how I could feel those drawings being drawn by this guy that was, you know, really cool to me. And so, of course, learning how to draw was just like the best thing I'd ever learned. So um, I didn't know it that I had put myself in that realm consciously. I knew that there was a news department, but I had to get into the graphics department to get a job. Well, NBC hired me because I could do pretty much anything that they told me to do. And it was like 226 bucks a week. And I was like, oh my God, I never got paid so much in my life. <laughs> um, so when I got there, there were some senior artists, one of whom was Jean Whitoff. And Jean Whitoff had covered many trials prior to my being on line to be trained for this. Because he was in his late 60s. I didn't realize that they were grooming me to be a courtroom sketch artist who had a mind of his own. <laughs> um, and one of the things that had happened was when Gene had been covering the most sought-after trial, Manson in L.A., Charles Manson, when Bobby Kennedy was shot, Gene was immediately called over to cover the Sirhan Sirhan situation, and I had to cover for the Linda Kasabian hearing. Manson was a thing of the past. They were now going after his crew. Right. So I had to do the Linda Kasabian thing, and they didn't need any more drawings from me or from NBC because that part of the trial wasn't all that interesting to the public. Manson was convicted. Saran essentially was convicted, but during that time I was called away to do all these other things until... Jean was called away to do another trial, and Angela Davis was happening in San Francisco. The Black Panthers were really quite a major political force, and they wanted to nail whoever was involved, and Angela Davis was a professor of law at Stanford University, and they wanted to nail her to the floor. NBC sent me to San Francisco. I was picked up by a reporter from the San Francisco NBC station. The trial was scheduled for the, or the hearing was scheduled for the next day. So we appeared in court at around 9, 9.30. And the judge came in and the first person of interest would be Angela Davis. I had been told by the reporter who would, that I was to get this particular point of view where he put me in the court nailed. I want, I want you to show me Angela Davis as she really is. Well, she is dignified, rather pretty. More than that, she was just fine, gracious. It's like everything you'd expect of kind of like a famous person to be. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was polite. She seemed like everything was in her command to answer truthfully. And so I drew her. We said, we're going to leave because the jury was in deliberation. So we went back to the car um, with the, the reporter and I went back to the car. I got in the back seat and I was drawing and finishing up the drawing and he was sitting in the front seat writing down what he wanted to say and and he says, well, he turned to me and he says, what do you, let me see your drawing. And I said, well, here you go. He says, no. 
I want her fist up. And I said, no, she didn't put her fist up. Put her fist up. So I had to do it. I am a grunt for the establishment that pays my bills. I couldn't stand up to him. That really bugged the shit out of me. So I gave him the drawing and I flew back to L.A. and I told my boss about it. And he says, oh, sounds like the news. Yeah, God, yeah. Just as a side question, I know you're not the type to toot your own horn, but I read that you got an Emmy for your work with NBC. Yes, I did. I did. I am proud of what I did. You're proud of what you were saying. Political hot potato. Mm -hmm. Um, I never opened up about it. I just said I got an Emmy. Mm -hmm. Primarily because what I did get an Emmy for was working with a team of reporters, photographers, videographers. So uh, my job was like, how do you present this idea transitioning to that idea with the graphics? Of course, we have text. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes it'd be an image. So that's what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until six months after that show opened that I discovered that it was nominated for a documentary Emmy. And because I had been called away from the... NBC graphics department to aid the news department, they included me in the team. So, uh, Max, in a, at the end of 73 or 74, you got it in your mind that you wanted to move to Mendocino. You were a working artist in Los Angeles. Then you'd have this run-in with this nutty neighbor who actually shot you, and you had to recover. And during this recovery time, you decided, once again, I, I, Northern California is interesting to me. I want to make a go of it. So what was it that moved you out of L.A. and up to Mendocino then? And describe your journey to get here. I was in denial about what life had handled, handed me with the shot because of PTSD. Didn't know it wasn't even an acronym at that time. Um, people were shell shocked if you were in a in a war, but I didn't realize it happens with a sudden injury and something that has to do with essentially disturbing your war. And not to mention getting shot, literally. Yeah, but yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Then, but the thing is, right after that, I just kind of like was numb. But then my dog got poisoned, and that was the sign that says we're getting out of town. And at that particular point, go north. Just go north. I had no plans about Mendocino. I had known people that had loved it, told me about it. And then, of course, I met Antonia when she came to visit my friend Berta, who was my neighbor. So I was going to stop because of her urging to visit Antonia. And I pulled into town, got the dog out so it could run, he could run, and showed up at Antonia's in the middle of a 4th of July party with, well, of course, Jane Parsons, but um, there were so many other famous musicians that had visited the 4th and were at Antonia's playing music and, and all these beautiful people that were like so unpretentious and not the least bit like Hollywood and it was a jolt in what was possible outside of LA. And we should mention shortly here that Antonia, in addition to her other artistic intentions and diversions, 
was a folk singer and knew a lot of the folk singing crowd from L.A., and you had met her before, and so coming up was kind of a natural thing for you to connect with her. And so from this party then, did you get an inkling, I want to be here, I want to... No, not at that time, not at that time. Uh, my, my next port of call was Roseburg, Oregon, where I visited with my folks, which was mainly, I'm just checking in. <laughs> right. I'm going to Canada along with all these other veterans back from the uh, Vietnam War, but I had my war in L.A., and there was kind of an exodus, people going to uh, Canada. And um, I decided I had camped the whole way. And so I went up to... Um, Crater Lake, found out that there was a myth about Crater Lake and how that happened, but it was a Native American myth and it was filled with wonderful imagery. Then I went to Mount Hood in in Oregon and then I went to Mount Rainier and that did it. That just did it. And it's like I am I'm a Native American and I've been I've been in denial all this time. I mean I really want to just take my shirt off and my shoes off and dance in the sun. That's mm-hmm. about me at that particular point. And it was enough to say, well, maybe I could earn a living now because I wasn't capable of learning a living. I wanted to come back to a place that would be um, where I could sell my art. And I figured, well, I'll go to Mendocino. There's there's an art center there. I'll go check that out. And this point, you would come into Mendocino with the intention of making a living as an independent artist, having worked in the up, sort of upper echelons of television, graphic arts, and so forth in Los Angeles, made a living as a professional artist. Suddenly you're in Mendocino with the intention of, like, I'm going to be an independent artist. I'm going to make this work. Yeah. And one of the things that happened was that you ended up doing a series of paintings that became locally famous and for art connoisseurs, I think, who have any inkling of these paintings are highly appreciated. And they're based on Grimm Brothers folk tales, they're based on other folk tales, and they're based on, for example, Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. You did a series of paintings for the seagull, and these were certainly famous in Northern California. And I wondered um, if you could talk a little bit about how you got started. I know they, they stem from a time when the Seagull, which was a famous Mendocino watering hole, restaurant, community gathering place, burned down, I believe, in December of 1976. Take it away. Well, yes, it was a town tragedy, kind of like pairing what you had said, what was I doing at the time? I was teaching. That was the first gig I could get that essentially was a steady paycheck. And so I taught for the College of the Redwoods, and I taught for the Arts Mendocino Art Center. And it just so happened that I was teaching the next day that the seagull burnt down and driving by, and it completely down to the bare bones, I had children from the grade school come to learn how to do a drawing. We had made a deal so that the grade school could bring kids in and have a lesson. And uh, it was lots of fun because I could get to town early and I could have lunch at town. And then the class, the real class, would begin. But it was early that the kids came. So there were 38 people that were out of livelihood during the winter. And a lot of them had kids in this class. 
And, of course, I was living at Toad Hall at the time, and Christopher Larson was a buddy. He would come to my cabin when Lee, his mother, was at work, and he had just got home from school. So I said, let him come on over. I mean, I can give him drawing equipment, and I can do my work, and he did. And we we talked about stories at the same time that he was drawing Superman. And so I had with him collectively remembered what that painting was that we all found so fascinating in the cellar bar because kids could come to be with their parents while they had a drink because they served food down there. So this was a famed painting in the old seagull which had gone burned down with it. But the painting, the conversation surrounding that particular painting made me realize that we are part, uh, we all live out the parts of, of fairy tales. And sometimes we do it in very short order. You know, we jump from what we were first told to another painting or to another story because that's how we were programmed as children. You know, what people did in life, you know, they stole lettuce and they got put in a tower. You know, they... (laughs) So the theme, the classical theme of fairy tales is that we're living a fairy tale. We just don't know it. We know we slip to and from in between roles of every Shakespearean drama. We slip back and forth between Japanese shoot 'em ups. We uh, incorporate in our way of being in the world every single story that's ever been told. So having a, a composite of fairy tales was kind of like a liberation. I mean, there were so many of them. And there were so many people that I found great affection for by moving here. And when I tried to sell the um, Princess and the Pea, Lee was all ready to join me and we were going to go down to San Francisco and sell it. But she decided she wanted to show David Jones beforehand and he bought it right on the spot. Now, and David, then it, David Jones was uh, an instrumental owner of the Seagull, who uh, during this time period, during the 70s into the mid-80s, David Jones ran the Seagull. He rebuilt the Seagull in 1977. It came back to being a local watering hole. And David also was a connoisseur of local artists. Yes, and also let's incorporate musicians, yes. let's say performers, he turned it into a, um, I mean, a napkin art. <laughs> I mean, sure, right. He turned it into something that welcomed people to express there. They not only could eat, they could also tell the waiters who they were and what they loved about being there. And then they would donate something or they would share or they'd perform. Or I mean, it was a a wonderful happening. The bar had like a giant A-frame type roof, as I recall. It still does, but it's not a bar anymore. And then David started buying Max's paintings, and then he commissioned some from you. But the commission was like, okay, I want four more. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yes, I mean, he was the ideal client. And he paid me fairly, and I just took it and ran like, well, I'll give him my all because that's what you do. 
And you started with the Pied Piper. That's the one you mentioned with Chris Larson. So maybe you want to tell the story about actually how that came together first, and then we can add on some of the others. Okay, so um, when we realized that it was being rebuilt, you know, and there were so many kids that wanted to help because their parents were working on it. Um, we were part of a community that, you know, raised funds for those people that uh, lost their jobs. It was Christmas time, so they needed money. I asked the kids that were Christopher's friends to come over and let's remember this painting because I had just sketched out on a door that I found in the barn at the at the uh, Toad Hall uh, with canvas and charcoal, and I got the composition going generally with what I remembered. And then um, Roy Michael's daughter, uh, Shaunus, said, well, you got to remember that the butterflies were the notes coming out from the Pied Piper's pipe. I says, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> Didn't get that one. Um, Shaunus has always had a mind for detail. Yes, <laughs> yes. And so Christopher invited his friends, you know, so the Crowning Shield kids came in, Mary Athalia came in with uh, Sandra Lindstrom's children. And then I ran out of children and I started painting the parents as uh, children when they were children. And I uh, put my dog in. Uh, put my cat in, put my neighbor's dog in, found some birds flying around, and I put them in, and I put a castle in the distance, which was, and it was about as far away as Toad's, Toad Hall was from where you would stand in the meadow. Mm-hmm. So it got done, and um, the newspaper knew that I had been working on it. And I, not from me, but, I mean, the kids were talking about it, and... Um, so they put a picture in the paper, and they named all the children, uh-huh. and it was really wonderful. So l- later on, I was getting way low on finances, so I decided to do another one. Same size, 30 inches by 80 inches, your standard door. And I thought, well, you know, I could paint a lot of mattresses. And Marnie had been my masseuse, who was a rolfer, and she uh, would burrow her elbow into my neck to my screams and so she had to go in as the most sensitive person (laughs) on the top and victor and marilyn had to be the king and queen and i was the magician holding the pea and there were i countless mattresses so this became the princess and the pea the princess and the pea and and essentially it really made me take stock that you know my humor was remo- was returning. Victor had helped me through, you know, quite a bit of the doorways that had been shut to me. So he bought that, and he says, "Okay, we got all these other beams. Let's start with four more." <laughs> so out of that came Rapunzel. It came Jack and the Beanstalk. It became Rumpelstiltskin. So I asked Jan Weiss if I could borrow Woody who was six months old. And then uh, Christopher showed me how a little boy gets angry and how he slams his foot through the floor. So he took me out near the barn where there was some um, 
cardboard. He says, now, Max, this is what a, this is what angry looks like. And so he slammed his foot through the floor because he knew the story of Rumpelstiltskin, and I photographed him. So the child in him became this shriveled character. One of the things about the seagull paintings was is your inclusiveness of the community. The fact that you personified these fairy tales yeah. by bringing in people from the community. You brought in all kinds of people. You can actually point to the to different people in the paintings and say, "This she used to be a waitress at the Seagull. She was a DJ on the local radio station. He was a carpenter. These children went to Mendocino Grammar School. So you ended up doing this community potpourri that that ends up including how many people were included from the community over the course and how many paintings are there actually there's i think there's 12 12 paintings but i mean it's anywhere between 150 and 170 people And that's only because somebody says, you better count it, Max, because I'm going to ask you that question. <laughs> right, here I am doing it years <laughs> yeah. later, yeah. I needed models. Would you mind if I painted you in a jar? You know, mm-hmm. oh, sure, Max. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, can I, can I frolic in the woods and you can paint me naked if you want? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Or, like with the David Clayton painting, the last one. David when... Clayton was a longtime contractor architect here in uh, the Mendocino area, and he died tragically in, in a car accident in the early 80s, I think. So David Jones called and said, I need to commission you for David's memorial portrait. And I said, well, send me as many photos as you can and some money. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, like it was David's painting, sad as it was, uh, really incorporated so much of what I've come to say I've learned from the paintings that you can dwell in grief, and that is really seductive. But there comes a point where suddenly you realize it's one of your prized possessions. It changes the way you come at life. You're more willing to open yourself up. You're more aware that somebody's going to grieve for you. But I can't take that on, so I had better learn how to just embrace all the griefs that I've had as, you know, like, those are paintings that I hang on my wall. Those are things that are in my diary that I would never be able to remember had I not written them down. So the grief became uh, a lesson with David and with everyone there because we still bond with those people um, that were in that painting. I mean, we all were grieving. It was a fitting end to the painting when David said he sold sold the seagull. That was a combination of, of moving on and a combination of, you know, a treasure. Max, um, you're famous also for a series of cat etchings, and I know you've always been a cat fan, you along with a number of of my artist friends. Uh, On your website, you have a titled series, it's called Slippers and Oreo and a Story of Violence, Sex, Love, and Surgery. And uh, this is a whole bunch of beautiful black and white, I think they're black and white and kind of blueish. They are, black and white. 
Yeah. And Seth, I just wondered, are these the only cats you've worked on, or have you done a lot of cats? Are you drawn to cats? Or Tell us a little bit about the cat etchings. All right. So, for one thing, I've always had a cat. I don't have a cat now. So, when I left Toad Hall, it was right after St. Dragon and the George. And I moved in to the top of a shell of a five-car garage at veterinarian Bill Hands. Bill had a donkey, the head of Bottom, three horses, 16 cats, nine dogs, and I think it was a parrot. Well, I came with three cats. This is all about cats, right? Mm -hmm. So I knew everybody's name in something like three months. And they all came to visit because they could climb the stairs and I had three cats that smelled different. And of course, all the cats at Bill, Bill Hands were there. Uh, My little kitty Slippers was there. Bill's cat Oreo was there. David's portrait painting for the seagull was there with all his workmen, all the people that wanted to be in that painting that they had sent me photos of in Honolulu. And um, Eleanor Hayes sent me a card of two cats that were walking into into the sunshine with their tails entwined. And finances look pretty bleak. And where things come from, God only knows. And I says, I'm going to make some etchings. How much is copper? So I found out I could get copper for what I had to do. 22 etchings, 24 etchings, because I had other things to do. And essentially I started designing a kind of basic compositional interest point for me of making sure that a square was totally explored there had to be a kind of symmetry between all sides but more than that it had to be a unity of what was the subject matter this is my head trip so essentially I had a portrait of slippers sitting on a book called quality which is the logo (laughs) for the bookstore in Mendocino. Oh, yeah. Um, So I had to turn that into slippers and not bumper. Bumper was the original drawing. So slippers became that. Slippers was the demure, innocent lady of the series who turns out to be a cat, after all. (laughs) God, can anybody enjoy anything quite so much as this? Anyway... (laughs) So, essentially, 22 etchings of the sequence of a cat in heat. So it shows slippers and Oreo and their prospective lead-up to the seduction. And essentially, Bill Hand, the veterinarian, at one point is watching all of this going on. Because he, if anyone knows about a cat in heat, it's a veterinarian. Um, he comes up and he brings me the sutures of the last patient <laughs> that he had taken from her. And that was from a lady kitty that essentially was no longer going to be capable of 
bearing any fruit. So essentially I had a complete etching base for putting into a gallery, which was very well received. I think it was because it was like uh, romance and heat is synonymous. <laughs> sure, sure. And in the cat community. I it's say. not. I mean, we're all cats. We're all mm-hmm. cats. Well, apropos, we moving around your website a little bit because it. By the way, the James Maxwell website is great. It's you can spend a lot of time there. One of the things I like a lot is the botanicals or your landscapes or botanical sections. One of my favorites, which kind of blew me out, it's one of the first things you see is a, I think it's a watercolor, it may be a painting, it's called The Lovers. It's a painting of a 90-year-old wisteria. Well, that's it, it's right over here. It's right outside the window we're looking at, right out here, and of course it's wintertime now, so the wisteria is craggy, but there's no leaves, or of course beautiful bluish-purple flowers. It's now 118. 118. Both of them. Right, they're they're intertwined together, that's why they're called The Lovers. Yeah. I love wisterias. I think it might be my single favorite plant. Tell us about the uh, the lovers, how you decided to do that. When I moved here, they were in full bloom, and it was dark, and I didn't see them until the next morning. And it was just such a stunner. It was like a shock. You know, and I, the idea of life alone is really not where it's at. I mean, it's always been, where is your lover? Where is your partner? And and having one and appreciating that and to see something like a 115-year-old rooted together and happy, <laughs> you know, and content and, and beautiful, you know, at that age. So um, what better... Thing to start with, I just happened to realize that it needed to be a big painting. So it's four feet by four feet per one put together. It's a diptych. So it's eight feet long, four feet high. And because I was suffering the pangs of the contrast between glare and what that did for me, I used a really multicolored background in the this painting. This is when you were having trouble, or already the glare, this is when you are having trouble with cataracts? Yeah, that, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, and I needed to make a statement about the glare inherent with distance between the subject matter and how far you could go in a painting, because there's a lot of space between there, and I couldn't want to, I didn't want to put what's back there. I wanted to put the ambience of it and put the lovers in front it just so happened that it was meant to make its appearance in a gallery on main street fort bragg a week after 9-11 when the twin towers were destroyed and i took it more as that was important Mm-hmm. that um, we could look at the positive side of two things that were very important being gone. And here are two things that are essentially happened. But I wasn't aware of the aspects of the Maxwell oeuvre, the Maxwell art. It's called Follies. And this was a completely unexpected anthropological journey into what I call quirky land. And if I'm understanding together... You've made a lot of sculpted objects which seem as if they were dug up as artifacts of a lost civilization uh, of gummy bears. 
and I was absolutely fascinated by these objects on your website, and I just wondered if you could tell us about these, what got you to work on them. I love this kind of stuff. I love fake civilizations. So, so gummy bears and a brainstorm. I think what happened was I faced my addiction to gummy bears to the point where I needed to get over it. And the only way I could feasibly find out how I truly felt was to embed them in cement and they would not consume me. So how it really got into the giggle realm. We have a garden, nooks and crannies, and one day a tree blew over and the roots were exposed and there's a huge hole in the ground and one of the guests had a little boy and comes over and he looks in the hole and he says, "Um, I wonder where that goes. And I realized, I'm going to make up some rules for gummy bears. There are good guys and, or, no, there are good guys and bad guys. And they come in many colors and flavors. And gummy bears are suspicious of animal crackers and their motives. They must never get married. Animal crackers have agendas all their own. And gummy bears have good taste. (laughs) Licorice is from another planet, but you can trade it for some stuff that is okay. Or you can chew it with your mouth open in front of grown-ups to gross them out. It's more expensive than candy. Okay, so there's been a war going on between the gummy bears and the anacrugs. That has lasted forever. And, oh yes, forever and ever. The cave of the gummy bears is in your own backyard. I'm very glad you love this series, and uh, I'm no longer addicted to gummy bears. So if you come to my house, bring your own. I know it's really evident to to any of us who have known you, and certainly those who have seen your website, that you love to travel. There On your website, there's a lot of pictures of your trips to New Zealand, South Pacific, Africa. I know you were stationed in Germany. I just Tell us about some of your favorite trips and some of the paintings or watercolors that were inspired by those travels. Thank you. Yes, travel is important for, I believe, one's awareness of other human beings and... Not the stories, but being on the ground and and being with a person. So many travels are are apart from the artwork that I make. The artwork is a paltry, paltry offering to the uh, wisdom that I've been able to understand because of travel. I'll have to bring this up right away. I had uh, accompanied um, a family to Africa to bring a children's literature library to a Maasai boarding school in the Great Rift Valley. Wow. 
And the place that we were staying was a township that was run by an international consortium that was um, essentially uh, taking the Trona off of a lake bed so that it could make uh, soda. And that soda was Kenya's largest exporter. It was soda ashes used to make glass. And so it's an industrial material being taken from the Great Rift Valley. But we decided to take this literature library, uh, and I was supporting my friends, and I was accompanying the wife primarily to do this work because the husband was the CEO of this company. So what makes this important for me was to understand that travel wakes you up. And while we were in the township, word got out that one of the workmen, not a high-class, important person in the company, their teenage daughter was killed in a head-on collision. And we had to, because the CEO couldn't go, but the wife and I decided that we should show up and essentially bring the support of the company to this family. I mean, there were three or four children that were crying when we walked in. The wife excused herself, and the man essentially invited us to sit down in his home. Very modest, concrete shell of a place with very minor but important furniture, but essentially a poor, poor family. And this guy says, what is an American doing in my living room? And he says, with the dead pause that I could offer, he says, is it true that in America you call all black people niggers? And I had to say yes. And I had to explain what was going on with America. And I couldn't help but show how embarrassed I was for being an embarrassed American in front of him because I did really see how this man was grieving and there was this real long pause I mean if he were to say get out of here uh, I would go with my tail between my legs but I think possibly it was a friend or a brother of this man saw what was going on he says "Um, there's this old Kenyan saying that if a stranger comes in your house, there is a blessing. I would never have had that experience had I not been there. Max, you talk about teaching on your website, and for many years you taught classes for the Mendo Art Center, the College of the Redwoods, and lots of other places. And I watched your interview with Chuck Bush on Senior Perspectives, and you talk about the main point of being a teacher is letting a student know it's okay to be yourself. I wasn't trained to be a teacher. You know, I was trained to be an artist. And I didn't follow any set rules on how to teach. I guess you teach by example. I, I don't know. I certainly don't do anything other than show up and find out what's needed. In a college, there is a curriculum that is preferred, but you know, I threw a lot of that out the window because there were people in there 
that needed something else. And so um, following needs are important when you, you don't really take the role of a teacher. You take the role of, well, wait a minute, I'm in charge here. <laughs> I think being able to work the room is part of what a, a best teacher can do. Is I can remember... <laughs> In a class I had at the College of the Redwoods where, God, everybody was so turned off with being where they were that I decided that they should show me what they really like. And this one guy brought in a book of Japanese tattoos. Well, you do not see a mark on my body, I'm sorry. I do not want a needle, especially with ink, making any dent into my perfectly fine skin, if you don't mind. I'm I'm equally chicken in this regard. (laughs) So I was standing over this boy, well, he was a young man, with this book, and he had opened up a a Japanese uh, book on tattoos, and I was absolutely stunned with the beauty of it. And I responded, my God, I think you've changed my mind. I think that is beautiful. That's what's important to me as a person, as another artist, that it was beautiful. And then all of a sudden, everybody in class stood up and took their shirts off and (laughs) rolled up this, brought their skirt up. I mean, it was like, where where am I? (laughs) But that is, who learned there? Where did, what was, who's the teacher? So that was kind of epiphany. You know, it's interesting. I've known you for years. I've always enjoyed your art. And it was interesting to uh, come back to your website after having not chatted with you in a while and then to be reminded of all the beautiful stuff you've done. I sort of wish I could own half the things that you ever made. (laughs) Um, But at the same time, I accept that they're out there in the world. But we've had a great time having a chance to talk with you. And I really, really enjoy your work, and I really think you're a fascinating person. And like I said, when you came by and you said to me, Doug, you're a collagist, and your eyes got all big, I will never forget that. So I thank you very much, James Maxwell. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks to our artist of the show, painter, sculptor, James Maxwell. Thanks to our tech meister, Marshall Downtown Brown. And thanks to our jack-of-all-trades, Ken Krause. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Scour magazines. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again.